Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm a confidence coach and instigator of joy. I believe that we are all so much more powerful than we can possibly understand. My goal with these conversations is to introduce you to brave, vulnerable people who are finding and owning their awesome. My guests are leaning into what makes them unique and sharing that uniqueness with the world. I hope these conversations inspire you to break free from whatever is holding you back and to step into your own greatness. Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My guest today is Robert Candell, who has been helping men find themselves for 14 years. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So what does that mean that you've been helping men find themselves for 14 years? Well, my main thesis is I think it's a really messed up time. Can I swear on the yeah, podcast? Please, yeah, please. It's encouraged. Yeah, it's a, it's a fucked up time. It's a fucked up time for men. And the most fucked up part is that men are not allowed to be fucked up. We live in a world where men are viewed as one with privilege, which is true. And inside the privilege, they don't have the opportunity to explore the fucked upness. So the fucked upness gets pushed down, becomes more fucked upness, and then they get more and more messed on the inside, and then more and more bad behaviors occur. So I help men find up their find their unfucked upness and unfuck themselves, basically. I love that, and I love that you use fucked upness so much. I would have used fuckery in there too. Oh, I was should be a little more creative there, but yeah, I was. It's okay. Ripping, you can add it to your ripping. book. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so how do you do that? There's, well, I have a process. Um, but the first part of the process is to confront. Uh, and that's what a lot of people and men don't do. We live in this sort of status quo. Things are going, everything is fine, numbing out, spending more time on social media, interacting with people, gambling, eating. We're in the numb state. And there's a certain, je ne sais quoi, that something's going on. There's, there's a certain something and so the first process of any, any journey is to confront that there's a new place you want to go. And so guys come to me and say, my life is not the way I expected it to be. What's going on? And we just confront. We, we pull back the blinders so men can see what's really happening rather than their mirage. I'm interested in, so I do something very similar. And mm-hmm. I, I just, the difference in wording so you use the word confront. I use the word, the word awareness. Okay. Confronting okay. will lead to awareness. Yes. I think we're yeah. saying the same things. Yeah. Um, men like confront. Men like confront because it's, you know. It's men. action. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So how did you get to this place? I was in that spot. <laughs> I was in the status quo. Uh, really what it came down to was I had a very strong script of who I should be in the world. It was handed to me by my father, grandfather, and all my Jewish ancestors. And I played out that playbook really well. So at 28, I was uh, married. I had a five-bedroom house in San Francisco. I had a corporate job. I was making six figures, you know, rising up the corporate ladder at a lightning speed. And I was also overweight, unhealthy, my wife and I didn't know each other. We weren't having any sex. And so there was a, mm, and it was actually my wife, my first wife, Carol, who said, no, this is not the way we're going to live. Let's change it. And so she was the white rabbit that led me down the deep rabbit hole, which has led me to here. 
Tell us about that rabbit hole, please. Well, the first thing happened at Burning Man in 1998 when I was 28 years old. And those who don't know what Burning Man is, it's a desert in the festival, uh, the festival in the desert that happens every year. And 75, 80,000 people go and it's debauchery and nudity and drugs and music and art and celebration and community. Uh, back in 1998, it wasn't as popular. It was a mere like 15,000 or 18,000 people. And my wife, Carol, said, hey, do you want to go to Burning Man? And I was like, ah, no, those are for those other people, you know, those medu- the doulas and the massage therapists and the hippies. And I'd seen a picture book of people walking around naked and crusted in mud. And I was like, no, that's not for me. But then she asked and she pleaded. And I'm like, all right, I'll go. And so I said yes to go to Burning Man, not knowing that it was going to be my wake-up call, uh, my call for adventure in terms of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, the, the, the noticing that there was more beyond my status quo. And what happened was um, we got to Burning Man. I got out of the car. There was like the drums in the distance and this cool breeze. And I got out of the car and the words came to me, you're home. And I was like, no, 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 I'm, no, this is, this is for Carol. This is for someone else. But it was for me. And it was the first moment where I saw the possibility of a different life that I could live. Wow. What did that yeah. feel like? Like, how do you, how'd that feel in your body? It, it really is one of those movie epics. You know, I don't, I don't know if you remember Field of Dreams when Kevin Costner, if you build it, it will come. You know, there really was a voice. It wasn't like a voice like that. I knew it was my own voice, but it really had that power. And I was, I was really uh, shaken up by that because I had really worked very hard throughout my life to get to this yuppie status quo, this very good citizen, nice guy, you know, white privileged cisgendered male role that I perfected. And to someone say, you know, your home in this place was a, was a huge, um, confusing, yet very intriguing moment. What were the rules that you were following up until that point? Oh, the path was really well defined. It's like, go to school, go to grad school, get a good first job, marry a woman, produce grandchildren, not children, grandchildren, produce children for the parents, produce grandchildren, buy a house, get a better job, retire, and then die. You know, like it was the well laid out path. And I was 28 and I was, you know, 62% of the way there with the wife, the house and the corporate job. They didn't have the kids yet, but you know, it really was very well laid out. And then Things like uh, don't rock the boat, you know, your sexuality is something that's not that important. You know, I was, I was, I was a New York Jew with an Irish Catholic, shame met guilt. Uh, we know the only time we had sex was alcohol or fighting. Um, she wouldn't even get undressed in front of me. So there was like, uh, never even talked about it, no seduction skills, no adventure. It was really just living my parents' wet dream of who I should be rather than really investigating any part of who I wanted to be. And then you end up in the desert. And desert. Then I have a really good story. Tell me the story, please. Okay. So two, two or three days later, you know, second or third day, Carol said to me, hey, there's this tent I heard where there's orgies going on. Do you want to go? Carol, and who won't get undressed in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, our sex life was pretty non-existent and very not adventurous. Vanilla, 
at its greatest form. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was like, yeah, I'd like to go. <laughs> and, you know, cause I had a very rich fantasy life and I was very much into internet porn, internet porn in 1998 being news groups were the stories. There was no video and there was pictures are hard to get, but I was very much into reading stories, erotica stories. And my favorite was orgies. So I was like, yeah. And so all day I'm thinking about orgy, orgy, orgy. I'm like, what's going to happen? Am I going to have sex with another woman? Am I going to see, what am I going to see? And then, you know, 10 o'clock at night, you know, we jump on our bikes and we ride across the playa and we go to the tent, Delilah's den and open up the tent flap doors. And I'm expecting the Roman-esque orgy. And instead there were 300 guys, uh, sorry, 200 guys and three women in the tent, (laughs) me and Carol. And I was like, oh, God. We walk around. (laughs) It's like every high school party, right, where there's 10,000 guys and two women. Carol becomes very popular. I am not even noticed. We walk around for 15 minutes, and I leave, feeling totally dejected. But then what happened was the real life changer, and that was we started to talk about our sex life and started to talk about what we wanted. And then one truth led to another truth. I don't think you're the last woman in my life I want to kiss. She's like, I don't think you're the last guy I want to kiss. It's like, I really want to explore this orgy thing. So do I. And this woman who wouldn't get dressed in front of me, all of a sudden we're, we're revealing these parts of ourselves, you know, going from hidden to unhidden. And then there's so much adventure. So when we, got, we left Burning Man and went back to San Francisco, we just started to explore. But the point was that one little moment of one truth leading to another changed the entire trajectory of my life. Wow. Okay. So it's like it broke open. What, what happened to all those rules that you'd been living by up until that point? Well, they slowly, it, certain rules got trashed. Certain rules are still existence, you know, in my life. But so, but all the rules that I had lived by, the unconscious uh, rules that I had lived by started to become, uh, I started to inspect them. I started to look at them and together we started to explore. And so everything was up for possibility. And this was San Francisco in the late nineties, which was the rave culture, the sex positive culture. It was a really amazing time to be there in your late twenties, early thirties with disposable income. And so we, you know, we could explore things and we took workshops and we took events and we went to parties and I started to do hallucinogenics and ecstasy and, this very vanilla guy just threw out all his rules or most of them and led to the highest highs of really incredible mind blowing experiences to the lowest lows of um, committing su- the, the thoughts of committing suicide due to so much jealousy, not really thinking about suicide, but feeling so uncomfortable as my wife, you know, fell in love with another guy and having hot sex with him, better sex with him than me. Ah, you know, just the, the, the whole range of emotions uh, stretched me and expanded me. And it was the most uh, amazing time uh, for expansion. Wow. And so 1998, that's 20 years ago. Yes. Where are you now? Are you still exploring sex? I mean, in terms of personal development? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes and no. So uh, four or five years of exploration. I'll give you the cliff notes and you can see what you want to talk about. Okay. Four or five years exploration, got involved with workshops and events and 
uh, in 2004, started an organization called One Taste. One Taste created something called Orgasmic Meditation. Uh, from I was with them from 2004 to 2014 as a COO, a partial owner, um, teacher, coach, ran the men's program, uh, taught over uh, 10,000 students, 400 workshops, took it from a paper napkin sketch to an international eight-figure business in my tenure. Left in 2014, totally burnt out, uh, wandered to, you know, ended up in Venice Beach, California, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And then four years after that, I'm now uh, happily married, mostly monogamous, uh, co-parenting two kids, living in a gated community, two dogs, building a business, and writing a book. So many lives. In terms of still exploring, yes, mostly in an intimate monogamous relationship with a most amazing woman, my second wife, Morgan. Uh, but still, both of us really interested in not staying inside our status quo, continue to push the buttons. And that makes this relationship the best I've ever had. It sounds like you, okay, so so many of us have had like that bathroom floor moment, Mm -hmm. that time where everything comes crumbling down. And from that moment, we kind of like put it all together and move forward and and typically share the story. Mm Mm-hmm. And for you, I guess that bathroom floor moment came at Burning Man? Well, I had many. Um, there are three or four different parts of my life that were those uh, decision points or the forks in the road. The Burning Man, I would call my awakening, the awakening of the spirit of what was inside of me. You know, to go back to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, it's, it describes the monomyth. And the monomyth being kind of the same story he found in all these different cultures about the path the hero takes. And what happens is the hero's in a status quo and things are good. Something happens, which is the call for adventure. He or she or they can say yes or no. If they answer no, their life declines. If they answer yes, then they go on the adventure the gifts from the gods come, the mentor comes, all the trials and tribulations, they finish the journey and they bring back the gold you know, to share. So that moment at Burning Man, the one with, with Carol, was really the call for adventure because we could have gone right back to our status quo, our non-sexist life, um, you know, me working overtime you know, nonstop, us being disconnected, but we both said yes to the call to adventure. And I credit her with one of the most impactful people in my life because we went on it for five years, didn't end up together, but still grew each other because we were saying, yes, yes. Oh my God, that's so hard. That's so scary. That's messing with my views of of scarcity and abundance and security. And do husband and wife do this? You know, can I have this? All these questions we had, but we kept saying yes to expansion of who we are. And I think that's the most important part of to use your term, being awesome, is saying yes to what life throws you in terms of adventure. I love that. And I love me some adventure. Yeah. This what, I can tell. what does it feel like to say yes? Most of the time, well, for me, for me, most of the time is yes. I say yes to big games. I like big games. I do not like small games. So in like saying yes to writing this book, I knew what it was going to cost me. 
I knew not only was it going to take time and energy, but I was going to have to give up my story that I was the man behind the curtain. I was the man supporting others. I was the man building other brands because I'm really good at that. And when I said I wanted to write a book, you know, really, you know, 18 months ago or 20 months ago is when I said full yes to it. I knew I'd have to work so deeply on my own fear of being seen. And that's some level been harder to write the book is, you know, moving past our own fears and so self-imposed limitations. And we all have them. And so saying yes to me is like, okay, let's do it. That's what it feels like. Mm, it feels similar for me. I, it comes with a deep breath and then like I close my eyes and, and jump. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, so, yeah. Okay. So being seen that I'm just thinking about this, like the awakening, the yes to adventure, the whole sexual exploration that feels very much to me. It sounds very much like you're, you're allowing yourself to be seen. Yes. Yes, that's true. But what's the difference between that and the writing the book being seen? When I was running One Taste, there was a woman named Nicole. She was the, the person in charge. She was the visionary. She was the writer. You know, she has a TED Talk with 2 million views. She has the book. She was the, the front runner. I was the man behind Nicole. And I was very comfortable in that role. You know, our relationship, our connection, you know, she was the brain, I was the brawn, another way of looking at it. And, you know, the reason we succeeded is we had really good roles. But I kept falling into that role of second. In terms of sexuality and um, being seen, most of that revealing was done in small groups, 20 or 30 people, or one-on-one in terms of. So I was comfortable with that because I was acculturated for that. I was acculturated for, you know, you know, showing my nude body in front of one person, though we did other crazy things that we can talk about. But the point is, like, I was used to that. The point of me stepping in front of the curtain, of being the man taking the, the hits, the flames, the responsibility, that's new. And to me, that's more scary than taking off my clothes in front of a group of people. Because... Um, this is my family name. This is, you know, my mom just listened to a little podcast I did. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I fucked you up as a child. You know, it's like, oh, mom. Oh, it's okay. You know, you're, it was the seventies. You didn't know what to do, you know, like, but I have to reveal these parts of myself to be authentic. And so it's, it's a different kind of revealing of being seen. Uh, that's really new for me. It is. And when you write your book, who are you writing to? I'm writing for men who it's really suited for mature 20 year olds. You know, the younger generation is so much wiser, so much wiser than my generation when it comes to accelerated growth and awareness and maturity. So when I think about the demographic, I like the, I like the boys and the men to have some life experience to kind of things, things that work and don't work. But then again, they're having so much life experience that 25-year-olds and 26-year-olds are really brilliant at this point. So kind of like that until an older age of 55 or 60, you know, at some point you're just like, okay, I'm on the downside of my life, who know something's amiss. 
there no because there's a lot of things that were promised to men by our culture that are not coming true. And there's, you know, historical and specific technical statistics we can go over, but you know, the, the, the promises that were made to our fathers and grandfathers are not coming true for men of coming into age and older generations. And so they know what are those promises? Well, if you look at the ethos of the 19 you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the concept was if you're a good family man, if you went to school, if you work hard, you could afford a house and you could provide for your family. Well, guess what? It's not true anymore at all. You know, union memberships are like 9% uh, if you, you know, of non-governmental people. Um, if you look at things like manufacturing, the manufacturing industry, which is predominantly men, uh, lost five to six million jobs since 2000. Uh, you know, women's uh, pay pay grade, you know, which was 60 cents in the 1970s, is now 93 cents for millennial women entering the workforce. Uh, women entering college uh, was around 30% in the 1960s and 1970s. It's now men 30% in current days. We're seeing a revolution, evolutional shift in terms of a man's role in society. We're, men are still holding on to the concept of they're the breadwinner, patriarchy, wearing the pants in the family, but the reality, if you look at the numbers, is that role is shifting and more and more women are becoming par, uh, breadwinners. So my point is like, you know, the ethos, the, the thing that we're told to men, if you work hard, go to school, get a good job, you'll be fine, not true. And in that, men are feeling something is amiss. How does that show up for them, that amissness? There's, there's some amazing books that I've had the pleasure to read and learn from. Uh, the End of Men, Hannah Rosen, an amazing book. Uh, I'm reading a book by a really prolific author named Michael Kimmel called uh, Angry White Guys. Ooh, that's a rough one to read. Uh, Man Interrupted by uh, Philip Zimbardo. Um, who did the Stanford prison experiment. These are really three epic books that show the statistics of things. And so what's happening is that men are getting angrier and angrier. And because they're not connected to their emotions, that anger is being more and more uh, sent inward. If you look at our president, if you look at the political situation, to me, that is a out uh, showing. It is, was created by masculine, which can be both men and women, masculine energy rage at the change of society. In that change, we don't know how to handle it. So what do we do? We, we have toxic behavior that hurts other genders. So men will blame women, uh, immigrants, uh, LBQT, um, all different groups out there, uh, rather than say, okay, I need to do something inside, the blame goes external. Yes. Yes. I forget what I asked you, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So that's who, I, yeah. Way back I asked you who you were writing your book to. Right. Um, that was just so good that I don't know where to go next. Well, there's someone else I wrote the book for. Mm-hmm. I wrote the book for people who love men, mostly women, who are confused by them. 
It's for them who say, I don't understand why he's doing this. Why is he so stubborn? Or why is he so angry? Or why can't I connect to him? I gave them a little section at the end. It's not so little, but I gave a series of essays that will hopefully give them clues to why your guy is acting the way he is. Here's the truth about men, is that men really are big love bugs. We're tinder kegs of, a, of affection looking for a place to go off. We're, we're full of love, but we don't know where to put it. And in that inability to express it, that's where our rage comes in. And we're, we don't have permission to speak about our fear. We don't have permission to talk about our anger. And so we act that way because there's not a safe space for us to be that. Mm-hmm. And so it's for both men to get a clue and information, but also for those who are confused by them to understand what's going on with their men. So how can we support men? My belief system is, it's funny, I just did a, I had a conversation with someone about this yesterday. So women don't, men don't trust women. We just don't. Because. Yeah, what's up with that? Okay. This is not women's fault. This is not men's fault. Actually, I don't like to be binary. There's so many genders. I really want to respect people's choice of the vastness of genders, but I'll just say men and women to make this conversation easier. So um, men don't trust women because we think if we reveal something about ourselves now, it's going to come and back and bite us somewhere down the line when you get angry. Because women tend to remember all these things. Men tend to forget most of it. Women tend to remember everything. You have your little Encyclopedia Britannica storing information in that computer brain of yours. And so if we say something today, we're afraid, you know, two weeks down the line, you'll bring it up against us. Now, women do this, bring up these things, because men don't listen, because men have really big egos and very specific structures on how we want to be talked to. And so women feel really frustrated that they can't tell the truth to their men. So they use the hammer of these really sharp topics to wake the guy up. So we have guys that don't trust women. We have women who don't believe men will, men will listen. And guess what? We have... Uh, chasms and and no communication pathways for men and women to talk. So I tell you this not to depress maybe a little bit, but also just to give the, what I see is the challenge between men and women. So in order for men to be helped and held, you have to say to that man in whatever way feels comfortable to you, you're a good man. You're a good man. You're a good man. I approve of you as a human being. And there are these behaviors that I want us to up-level together. For men to say to women, you're a good woman. You're a good woman. I want to listen to what you have to say. I'm going to feel the feelings of it. I might have feelings about what you say, but then I really want to know you and have space for you. In this simple dynamic of women's approval for men and men listening to women, I think every relationship can be up-leveled a little bit or exponentially because this isn't what's happening. We're sitting behind the facades of who we think we should be in society rather than actually connecting about these deep, intimate things. And the pain gets worse and rots and gets more putrid. And our ability to communicate them, that's how I can get healed. That's where forgiveness can come. And that's where the deepest intimacy and the best sex comes from.
Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about conscious communication lately. I think it's like my response to the, well, the fuckery of the world right now. Uh And it seems, I mean, I've only been here for X number of years, Mm -hmm. but what I've noticed is it feels like our communication skills, I don't know if they've gotten worse or if we just really suck at them. We don't listen to each other. Yeah. We, we don't. Suck at them. We, we suck don't at them. to be understood. Right. Yeah. No, we're, we're bad. We're trained to be mediocre communicators. So please go ahead. I interrupted. You. Well, wait. No. So I want to know what do you what do you mean by that? How are we trained to be mediocre communicators? My viewpoint. These are all my viewpoints, obviously. But my viewpoint is society teaches people to be mediocre communicators because we're told to withhold significant parts of ourselves. We're told to withhold significant truths. And in my world, in my lineage, withholding is lying. But because we're so afraid of each other's egos, of ruffling each other's egos, especially men's egos, because we're so afraid of uh, rocking the boat, we keep our deepest, sometimes most painful viewpoints inside until it gets way too much to handle. And then we explode in some epic proportion. I can't believe you never take out the trash. Ah, you know, rather than in real time. Hey, honey, when you said you would take out the trash and you didn't, it had me feel invalidated as your partner. Like we hold it in and it grows exponentially. And so we only speak one if we truly want something um, or if it gets so bad, we can't hold it anymore. And my belief is powerful conscious communication to use your word is a constant flow back and forth. And knowing that your partner is going to evolve as a human being, you know, your status quo, your, your, we don't want stasis. We want change, but often we think we partner should stay the same. So your partner will evolve, you'll evolve to have a constant flow of communication. That's where the healthiest relationships will occur. Yes. And that constant exchange of information, that actually speaks to my definition of connection is um, constant flow of energy from open heart to open heart. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want in all of our relationships, right? Intimate relationships and others. Like we want the energy flowing. Well, sometimes. Because sometimes people have a lot of trouble receiving, mm. especially women. Yeah, we're horrible at it. Horrible at it. A guy's I, like, ah, I have all this love I want to give you. You know, last night, my wife has a sore neck. She's had a sore neck for three or four days. I love her. She, I, would, I would do anything for her. It's like she's my favorite person in the entire world. And I rubbed her shoulders in the morning before leaving. And then I noticed her neck still screwed. And I was just like, let me rub your neck. And she's like, no. I'm like, why? Am I not good at it? She's like, you're wonderful at it. But you, you rubbed my neck this morning. And I don't feel comfortable with you rubbing my neck at night. I was like, this is ridiculous. We're going to lay here reading books or playing on our phones instead of me touching you and loving you. And it took seven minutes for me to convince her to let me rub her neck. And she's like, I'm having trouble receiving. I understand. And then we played and we teased and I got to rub her neck for 20 minutes. It was wonderful. But that's how we are. We're, we have fear of receiving. We have fear of what it means. We have fear of not being equal, which is so weird of what it'll cost us, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. So we, say we, do, want open, we do want open-hearted energy flow. And at the same time, 
we have some really strong reception challenges. We do. There's something that was brought to my attention earlier this year about receiving and then immediately wanted to, wanting to give back. Mm-hmm. But when, when we do that, like you're not fully receiving. Mm-hmm. Like to sit in that moment of receiving, yeah. to just like accept and truly receive with gratitude and just yeah. like be in it. Be in it yeah. for a full 24 hours or a year or however long it takes yeah. and then give back. It's not like our bucket needs to reach a certain level and then, oh, we've got enough to give. Let the bucket overflow mm-hmm. and then give. Yeah. Our, our practice at One Taste was called orgasmic meditation. In this practice, the woman lays down. I'm going to be a little graphic. Woman lays down, spreads her legs. The stroker, normally a guy takes the most dexterous part of his body, his index finger, and strokes the most sensitive part of a woman's body, her upper left-hand quadrant of her clitoris, with lubrication for 15 minutes. In that time, the woman is just to receive. She doesn't rub him or thank him. She can, but the real job is just to receive the stroke and enjoy the pleasure. Women had the roughest time in the beginning. What do I do? What does he get out of it? You know, what's the benefit to him? And so we built this practice, one, for men to put their, learn to put their attention on a woman's pleasure, but two, more importantly, for a woman to receive. You know, a woman, to me, with a strong appetite is more attractive than a woman with less appetite. I love when Morgan has big goals and dreams. I get a little scared of them, but I, I love it because it challenges me as a man, inspires me. But that's very difficult for women because they've been so persecuted in society say if you want too much it's too much woman blah 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 and it's it's a detriment i remember this in a way completely shifting from that but i remember this article a few years ago um went during the women's world cup Mm -hmm. in soccer and it was a bunch of photos of the soccer players and i think the title was like about watching women want Mm. and that it was so empowering and fascinating and inspiring just to see Mm -hmm. the desire on women's faces as they they want the ball they want the win yeah want they want why is it so hard for women to want women want it's hard for them to communicate their want when a woman wants and can't communicate it that's uh, when they get uh, constipated and a, a constipated, an energetically constipated woman is not a fun woman to be around. Mm-hmm. Okay. And most women are constipated. And so we, that's a lot of what's going on in the world is that women are just full of wants without permission. Um, and the reason that they can't communicate is because they've been burnt at the stake for speaking their desire. Because what happens when a woman sp- expresses her desire fully Uh, and she's in partnership with a man, the man has three opportunities. One is to run. Two is to uh, non-confront. And um, Sorry, four opportunities. I just added one. Run, non-confront. Try to shrink the woman back to the right size or expand. And men like to expand on their own time. So if a woman's saying, I want this new car, I want to have a rich sex life, I want to have kids, I want a better house, you know, most men go to the shrinking of the woman or the running. And it takes a good man to say, all right, 
this is going to be really challenging. All my buttons are going to be pushed. I'm going to be pushed past my capacity, but I want to say yes to that adventure. And that's where a man can grow. So, but those men are rare today. And so my hope is we can wake the men up to say yes. Um, so a woman can speak her desire. Morgan would much prefer, rather prefer a yes, but not right now than a no. And so in that yes, but not now, then we're in partnership to co-create it. When I say no, or when a little man says no to her, then you shut the game down. It's not that much fun. So women really just have a tough time because men usually aren't receptive to their desires. So they make them small. It's called ordering short. You know, it's going to Denny's instead of that fine French restaurant you've always been dreaming about. And that's what women do throughout their lives with sexuality and relationships. They order short. And it's sad. Oh my God. Women, let's, let's leave Denny's behind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Order big. That was fun in college. Let's grow up. Drunk and hungover and. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows what time. It also, it also was True. good after swim meets. Oh, good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chlorine makes things taste good. So you said that men like to expand on their own time. Yes. Why? Men like to do everything on their own time because <laughs> we're stubborn. Um, men, all men are chauvinists. Chauvinists being defined as thinking that men are the, the superior sex and women on some form are weak, weak. Not all men, but like 99.9% of men are chauvinists. I don't have chauvinist as a negative term. I have acting chauvinistic as negative. But we are born and bred, both men and women, all genders, again, have this belief system that men are in the superior position. And so because we have this uh, indoctrinated into us, we have the societal uh, programs installed in us. If a man is being pushed outside his own time, he thinks, who is this lesser than telling me to speed up or slow down? Now, another man that they they surrender to or conceive to that's different but from a woman you know who are you who are you weak woman telling me to change my own time so it actually takes agency awareness and practice to be like oh women are not less than at all when morgan says this this and this i've trained myself outside my my conditioning to listen because she's deep wisdom that I often don't have in areas I don't see. And in the partnership of my masculine and her feminine, that's where the greatest marriage is. And that's where the most power is. I depend on her wisdom and that's made my life better and better across the board. But at the basic level, without awareness, men will have the bias to think that they know better. That's just what we were taught to do. Where does that come from? The patriarchy, you know, the patriarchy has been around for 6,000 years. Uh, scientists, you know, it was originally called fatherhood. Depending on the scientists you look at, anywhere from 3,500 to 4,000 BCE is when the, you know, as we shift from an egalitarian uh, hunter-gatherer into an agricultural society, the patriarchy arose. I think that the patriarchy had good intentions when it started. It was for protection. Men were physically stronger. I think it really had good intentions. And then over 6,000 years, um, it got really screwy. The Greeks, you know, the great philosophers really kind of messed things up. Um, but, you know, really the, 
the the concept it, it just got skewy and so you know we are the result of 6000 years of societal bias you know women's suffrage started in 1848 so a mere 170 years ago women's right to vote 1920 19th amendment 100 years ago so we're not talking in the great scheme of time you know this is a drop in the bucket and in terms of patriarchy it's a very small percentage of changes and if you really look at it in terms of society, it wasn't until the 1970s that the society really woke up and started to move the boulder towards equality. And there's still a long way to go. And then, of course, Me Too a year ago, it was a big wake-up call. So in terms of, of modern evolution, we're still relatively new in terms of a new paradigm of men and women being equal. Yeah. So in like for all the women... For all the women today who feel who are sick of being ignored, yes, and all the men who are also sick of women being being ignored, or the men who are ignoring the women, yeah. Well, what do you say? <laughs> um, this is back to the original question: confront. You know, when the pain of change is less than the pain of change, staying the same, things will change. So if you're happy and you're ignoring or being ignored, all the power to you, you know, turn off this podcast and go watch something on Netflix. Like, mm-hmm. seriously, like if you're happy with what you have, then go keep doing it. But if there's an itch inside of you that knows something's amiss or something's wrong, then, you know, the second step after confronting is what I call investigate. Do the work to see what's out there. Look up patriarchy on Wikipedia you know, read some books. I've read so many books in preparation for, you know, writing my own. It's been such a blessing. There's so much information out there. There's videos if you don't like books. There's audio books if you don't want videos and you want to do it while you're driving. I mean, there's, there's such a plethora of free and inexpensive information out there. So go investigate, you know, figure out what's out there. The third is uh, what I call commit. You know, saying yes to that call adventure when you took your deep breath in and, and then jumped off the cliff, you know, commit to changing. And then what I say is build a practice around it. You know, if you're in relationship with a man where you feel ignored, say, hey, I want to do a practice for the next 28 days. The moments where I feel ignored, may I tap you on the shoulder or may I say a word? I understand that you're probably not doing this on purpose, but I can't be in this relationship where I'm feeling this way. Will you be my partner, my lab partner, my team partner in working together so we don't have to have this anymore? And if the guy says no, bail in the relationship. If the guy says yes, which I suspect he'll do, then like make it a game. Wow, we had 17 ignorers today, but last week, but now we only have six. We're improving. Like that's, that's progress. That's the practice. It could be as simple as that. And you, you might be laughing at this, but it's these simple little things that can change your life. These little things, these things that we never think anyone will say yes to. So commit to a practice, do your practice, and then complete a cycle and then celebrate it, you know, debrief, and then go back into it if you want, create a new practice. That's how you change your life. It doesn't have to be complicated. It can be the simplest little things, but you have to commit and then you have to do it. If you don't do it, you can go back to your status quo and then back to where you are. Was there a significance for 28 days? No, I mean, that's just a random number popped in my head. 
they say 28 days is what it takes to break a habit. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the number that kind of pops in my head. Usually it's a nice round number too. Yes. Not a prime number, but it's a, you know, 20, <laughs> it's a good number. 29 is a good prime number, but anyway, we'll, go keep, ahead. we'll keep 28. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's really helpful for when it's like an intimate relationship. What about when it's something bigger? When I, I mean, cause women, we could ignore, you know, the number of times that I've had a man come up and start talking to my husband and completely ignore me. How do we respond to that? Well, it depends if you want to be a nice woman or not. You probably do. You don't want to break your society wants. Yeah. So, you know, you, I would make a conversation with your husband about it. He could play, you know, the, the guy, huh? You know, this is my wife, you know, Mm -hmm. very interesting. She knows a lot about this topic. I'm constantly passing people to Morgan who, especially about things that she knows more about. Oh, you want to know about ancestral trauma? I know a little bit to be dangerous, but really you should go talk to Morgan. Or like, wow, I think you, like I'm constantly in, um, passing the ball. And Morgan sometimes doesn't like it. She's just like, ah, oh, but then she talks and she's brilliant and she's happy. But the point is like, you know, your husband can be your partner to bump, you know, in volleyball, like bump it to you. Or you could be like, hey, I'm standing here. <laughs> you know, like you can make a joke about it. You can have fun. Like, I don't know how tall you are. I can just see your head. Are you... I, I'm almost six feet. You're almost six feet. Okay. Wow. Um, so, you know, use that, use that tower. If you're short, you know, you could be like, I know I'm short, like make a game out of it. But what we do is we, we stand in our fury and anger of the status quo and don't do anything about it. And then we think really hard, bad thoughts and expect the other person to hear our bad thoughts. And then we get mad. They can't hear our bad thoughts rather than using this oratory advice called our voice to not be ignored. And what's the worst that can happen? Exactly. And yeah. what's the best that could happen? I don't know. It could be your next book deal, your next business deal, or Sorry. someone could spread really bad rumors about you, but then you become a hero of the, of the women out there for poking the ignorant guy. That's true. And when we stand there in our fury, I picture like there's like three-year-old us who's standing there stomping her feet, yeah. like, slamming her fist on something and when we just stand there stoically we are not honoring her right one of my taglines uh my pithy statements is that women are angry and men are dumb and this always draws good conversation afterwards and the reason that men are dumb is because women won't tell them the truth and so what happens is men remain dumb or uneducated and they keep doing the same things over. And then women get angry and angrier and they tell men less and then men get dumber and dumber. And then you have this cycle and you know, the, the, the antithesis to the cycle is for women to say, when this happens, this is the impact on me. Was this your intention? Or this is the way how it feels. And it's for guys to say, you know, something's kind of strange. Can we talk about this? Can we have a conversation? Or would you be willing to, when I'm acting dumb, just tell me, like, I really want to learn how to be a good partner to you. It just takes one person to break the cycle. You know, I was numb and dumb. Like when they came, that Bernie man, I was like, I was a nice guy, but I was really, really dumb. And, you know, my willingness to say yes had women start telling me the truth. And then I was like, oh, I was really curious. And then they told me more truth. And I got smarter. Then it was more fun to tell me the truth. And all of a sudden, like I got smarter and smarter and smarter. And now I understand women. Like 
I know it sounds like I'm bragging, but it's a lot of work, but I understand women and in the understanding women feel seen and then they tell you more things. So it's a practice like anything else. And I can tell you it's totally worth it. Awesome. Yeah. I feel like that might be a good, I, I could talk to you all day, True. but that might be a good place to wrap this up. And, right. um, Actually, no. First, I have a question for you. Okay. One question. I'm, I'm curious. What's the scariest thing you've ever done? <sighs> scariest thing I've ever done. I'll tell you a vulnerable story. So at 28, I was normal. 28, I went to Burning Man. About uh, a year later, I was diving deep into the work. Um, and I was a little insane in terms of, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I was a really good, dutiful son my entire life. And then all of a sudden it was like a candy store and I was just like going nonstop. And I had a very open relationship with my parents and um, I would tell them what I was learning. So a year after Burning Man, a year plus over Christmas, we had an intervention for me, basically saying, we're upset, we're worried about you, we're nervous. We might have to call a culty programmer. Like they were very nervous about me and I was just, I did my best to placate them. Anyway, three months after that was my 30th birthday. And my dad on my 30th birthday sent me a seven page fax, fax, a facsimile, basically disowning me and basically uh, cutting me off in all relating money advice, like this very deep, thick, you know, codependent Jewish relationship got etched a sketch and blown up. And I remember reading that fax and there was a pull, again, one of those crossroads where I could have said, all right, I got to jump on the phone with my dad. I got to fix this. I got to go back into the status quo of my life. And instead, I just took the fax and I put it aside and I went among my life. And that was very difficult for me because I was so used to, it was, it wasn't just the relationship with my dad. It was a relationship to the man I thought I was going to be. I was letting go of that boy. And in that letting go, this whole life, these last 18 years was from that one decision of saying yes to the adventure. And that, but that was an epically scary moment because I was killing the boy or killing that old man, that old boy uh, and becoming a new man. And I never regretted it, not for a single moment, but that was a pretty nerve wracking time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Are you, are you dad and you still estranged? Uh, about nine years after that, uh, one taste was on the front page of the New York Times style section. And you know, we got flooded with press. And my dad was like, huh, maybe this, maybe the kid has not a stupid idea after all. And then about five years later, I left one taste. And that's really where our relationship started to mend. But it's nowhere near it ever was. He still thinks I made a mistake. And he's sticking to that viewpoint. And I respect, you know, it's from his perspective. I really, you know, went off his beaten path. So uh, the answer is it's, it's nice now, but it's never, it'll never, in this lifetime, it will never go back, I suspect, the way it was. And mm -hmm. so it is. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for asking. All right, Robert, how can people <laughs> learn more about you? <laughs> uh, RobertCandell.com is uh, the hub of all things me. Uh, you can find out my book. My book will release December 6th. There's pre-orders and perks now. Um, 
then uh, my podcast, my writing, a uh, way to get in touch with me. I'm doing 10-week programs in 2019. I'm doing a communication course across the country in 2019. Maybe you'll come to one of them and be my guest. Um, I would love that. And But all things can be found at robertcandell.com, including access to my social media. Awesome. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to leave people with? Well, I, I often say this at the end of interviews. It's like, I just want to tell people that my teacher says, you can't go from better, from, from bad to better. You can only go from better to good, and then you can go from good to better. Most people think they're in some shade of bad coming up to good. And I just want to give you the viewpoint that you're a good person. Like you're a good man, a good woman, there's some, whatever gender there is, like good, you are good. And good includes the propensity and the possibility of getting to better. So if you can shift your mindset, if you can reframe that even some of the hardest things of your life are good, then you can get to better. And I think that's our evolution. And then our better becomes our good. And there's new, a new better to a new mountain to climb. But let's just start from the place you're doing a good job. You're a good person. And let's make it better. Mm, I love that. You're exactly where you're supposed to be right now. Exactly. And you're a good human. Yes. Love you're an it. awesome human. You, yes, you are an awesome <laughs> human. And Robert Kendall, you are an awesome human. Thank Thanks you so life. much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please head over to Facebook and join the group Find Your Awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, go to my website, kelseyabbott.com, and there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome.